The Professional Capitalism Restorers podcast informs companies just like yours why we need to do this together. This free service allows you to obtain business insights to help develop and grow your company to allow for a better lifestyle. Together we have the ability to provide valuable insights, knowledge, guidance and personal resources accumulated over many years. This podcast is developed for you to claw back your valuable time and hopefully help with your forward goals. This podcast is all about giving back. No strings attached, no funny business, no get-rich-quick schemes, but simply to provide some of mine and our amazing co-hosts their wisdom, stories, and hopefully some valuable insight. Together, we have the ability to grow, sustain, and provide a healthy work-life balance for all the cleaners and restorers. As this is totally free, please subscribe, write a review, and share this podcast today. Now onto the show. We would like to thank our sponsor, Cassie. The Cleaning and Restoration Science Institute. Increase recognition and valuing your expertise. Hi everyone and welcome to the this fortnight's podcast. So as we've been doing in this season three of the podcast, we've been looking at the cert four in the water restoration um, of Australia. So it's the new cert four that's come out. Um, the course itself is in development. Uh, the actual structure has been put out as of September 2021. Yeah, no, November. November 2021. And so part of this is to go through that cert four with you. So today what we're looking at is uh, the WHS or the OHS component of a water damage um, process, I suppose, the, uh, the claim itself. Mm-hmm what goes into it for an administration side uh, as a technician side and also what third parties should be looking for as well. So looking in is that way. It's a very important section um, of, of the actual whole package uh, of what the CERT for is looking for because it, it goes across every aspect of it. So all six stages of what they're trying to do. So the first one we did was on administration, which was extremely good. Uh, it broke down the administration into um, how you should gather information, what information should be gathered, how that information is processed, what happens to the information, and then how is it passed on as well. So it was very good as, as that. And the same with what we're going to do today. It's, it's the whole process of WHS, occupational health and safety, whatever you want to call it. Streamlining it and making it. Absolutely. As simple as possible because it yeah. can be very confusing. Uh, and, and also very time-consuming as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we want to get through um, on this podcast uh, and the next podcast as well. So two podcasts on WHS. Uh, it's very vital and I think it's something that, um, that you can always come back to. And if you've got new staff members coming in as well, yeah, they can also have a listen to these and it's great for that onboarding process to have these as well. So um, I suppose a major sponsor again, Cassie. So thank you, Cassie. And so virtually what we're going to do is I've got Brooke here. So Brooke has been putting together the manual for about a year and a half now. Um, even though it only came out in November last year, we've been working on this with Artivist now for a good year and a half. Yeah, about 18 months 18 and months. working on yep. smaller courses in the background and getting our research and development in, into place. So so Brooke's got a wealth of knowledge on this. So thank you very Brooke for coming in. Um, and Brooke is a CASA employee. 
So she has been working on this in the background, as I said, for a long time. So she does have a lot of experience in this. Um, and I suppose the biggest thing we're seeing in the industry currently is, I guess, the lack of understanding around OHMS. Yeah. Would it be? Yeah, WHS. It, it is confusing. And even we've spoken to um, trainers and assessors of DHS, and they've even said themselves it can be very, very confusing because a lot of it is to do with what resources you can get access to. There's no set and stone way of doing things to protect your employees with the WHS or to um, to be following the WHS regulations and legislation. So it can be very grey area for a lot of it, but there's documentation you can have in place that's going to protect you uh, if anything does go wrong. And then you can kind of fall back on that to go, well, this is what we've done. These are the steps that we've taken to try and prevent this sort of stuff from happening. And it can help you in that aspect. I guess the other thing with that, um, as we've been speaking with people about obviously putting these courses together, is the interpretation of the legislation, yeah. which is a big <laughs> thing as well. So, and I think that's very hard to get across to people is that um, even though it says something, it depends what sort of the argument you want as yeah. to what it actually means. Yeah. So it's the same with the internet. If you've got an argument for something, you can find some in the backyard, regardless of which side you're on. That's right. So it, you can look back at one of our past um, interviews, actually, with uh, with Phil Scar. Uh, we'll, we'll put the links in the show notes um, and have a have a listen to what Phil Scar says about it. So Phil Scar is a uh, full time employee that actually is uh, employed to train um, WHS and assess WHS in multiple um, applications. So a wealth of knowledge. And uh, we've also, you know, used his backup to help to assist uh, to get some of this information as well, which to us was very unclear um, as well, which will demonstrate through this whole process, I'm guessing. So so I just want to go through um, what it is that we're looking at uh, in this conversation. So... It's known as a body of evidence. It's components of the unit uh, that um, initials you to demonstrate knowledge. Yeah. Okay. So what we're looking at is we're also looking at the aspects that are in the S500 through the WICRC, which is a uh, water damage uh, guideline mm -hmm. for doing water loss, which is clean water, grey water, black water. Uh, it covers all of those. Then we're also going to look at the Australian and New Zealand standards. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll look at those. We'll look at also the EPA. So in Australia, we've got the EPA. Um, we'll look at those uh, requirements. And then that, that will change too, depending on your local area, because it will change state by state and then sometimes by just what city council you're under as well. Mm. How do you get that information? How do you found getting that information other than difficult? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard, but if you can find the state information um, is generally pretty easy and it is across the board. Like it doesn't really change too much across the different states. Um, to do with your local side of things, you'd go to your local city council or whatever area you're working in and just make sure because if you're like, for example, a business located in Brisbane, but they might be doing work in Ipswich or Gold Coast, it might be a little bit different. So they need to check that and have those procedures in place to make sure they're not doing anything they shouldn't be. Um, and sometimes that just comes down to uh, what dump you're taking it to, the, the waste. So yeah. 
if they'll take it or if they won't. Is that really the only thing you're looking at is um, with the changes? Because I know when we do um, crime scene cleanups, methamphetamine, all that sort of stuff, that's one thing we certainly do have to look yeah. at. What about uh, contaminated waste from, um, let's say we've got the Brisbane floods at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, have you found anything with contaminated waste with stormwater or flooding? Not too much. Um, haven't gone into the local side of things because the course that we're working on has to kind of cover national. national yeah. Um, so it's more that that I've been looking at. But I will, out of curiosity, probably more than anything, or even just to have as an example as to how it changes, look yeah. at a couple of different city councils that are close by to each other just to see if there is any differences so that people can see where I looked and how, like how I found that information because I think that's one thing that can be quite difficult is the where do you look, where do you go to get the most up-to-date information. So we'll put that in the um, the show notes. I think we'll, we'll do theirs. We'll mm -hmm. add that to the show notes yeah. um, in city councils. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be really good, actually. Um, so after that, we're looking at um, uh, the site itself. So we're looking at uh, site access, security codes, keys, etc., alarms, um, any sort of uh, notification that you may have to give. Uh, it may be that it's limited time that you're able to get to sites. Um, you know, it may be a bank. Uh, and they might not want you in at certain times because they're loading the teller or something. So along those lines, you've got to think of those things as well. And if you're going to deactivate an alarm, um, how do you make sure that it's been activated after you've left as well? Maintaining um, client privacy and confidentiality. Uh, this is a big one if you're doing medical centres especially. Um, this is something that people don't often think about is that uh, if you if a medical center um, has a flood and this this happens actually more than you might think there's going to be a lot of patient information um, maybe laying around or in areas that are visible to you behind uh, in doctors offices yeah things absolutely. like that on shelves people forget what they put yeah. in places it could be something that's just not needed and they don't think it was important but having someone external come in yeah makes it important because then that's privacy absolutely so you've got to be looking at the photos that you're taking that the photos that you're taking don't have anything on there that could then lead to something in down the line um and also you're not taking photos to put on social media as well that could um do that as well so there are some places where you have to sign uh, a non-disclosure uh, for or this purpose as well, agreement. privacy agreement. Yep. Um, so there's little things that you got to think about as well. Uh, once you've got the information, um, how is it stored, and also how is it locked up? How is it distributed as well? And who is it distributed? Who it distributed to? Yeah. So a lot of people don't realise that whoever signs the check for payment owns that information. So if a client, uh, if you got um, brought in from a third-party supplier, an insurance company to do a claim, and the client asks for that uh, report or information, you're not obligated to actually pass that information on to the client, uh, sorry, the homeowner or the tenant. Um, 
they're actually have to go through to the insurance company and ask if they can get it that way, or they can repay for a, an additional assessment, which then they own. Yeah. Okay, so that's very important to understand as well. In the end, the be all is that if you get the job through an insurance company, that's the person that's paying and they're the ones that have brought you on. The homeowner is yeah. sort of there to allow you access. Yeah. And- well, they might own the policy, but yeah. they haven't paid for you to be there. So no. that's very important. Um, have to have a look at, uh, if you're entering the site, the exposures to uh, mycological contamination, um, you know, VOCs as well, uh, anything that may, of course, so if you're looking at a fire or anything that's causing a fire to burn, so you might be there for water damage, but that water damage might have been caused from a kitchen fire that they put the water, uh, the kitchen out with water and now you got a flood. So again, you're still going to look at the picture, the whole picture and determine uh, of what the loss is and what the contamination, the risk of entering the property is. And then you look at your PPA, you look at the people coming in, you look at um, how safe and secure you have to have that property. Um, structure weaknesses, anything yeah, like that. All your documentation around that as well. Uh, you also have to look at your heating and cooling and ventilation. So your aircon systems, whether it's ducted, whether it's split air conditioned, uh, if it's in an office, um, are they are they parallel or are they separate um, or, or do they all join together? So we've actually got one now where a commercial building um, that uh, it's eight studios and all eight studios are on the one unit. So if we start pushing mouldy air up into that ventilation system, it's going to go into the other seven units. So it's something you definitely need to have a look at. Um, and as far as um, documentation, um, if you're not sure about that, you, you obviously get that expert in. But what you can do is you can cover those sections up and put a big don't turn on or turn the actual air conditioning system off altogether yeah. to be safe. So. Um, you have to have a look at the location of the damage. So not just visible, but the areas that aren't visible as well. Um, is there a chance that that could escape uh, and become harmful? For instance, if you're doing a claim and um, you suspect it's been a long-term claim and it's been leaking behind the wall, maybe it's a shower that's been leaking uh, from the faucets for a long time, and you go in and say, look, I can't remove that wall due to it may have asbestos or whatever you, you may think. And then you walk away and then a homeowner comes in and says, oh, well, I may as well just remove that wall. So they remove the wall without any containment. Then you walk back in and see it's different. Well, that then becomes a whole new kettle of fish. And where does your occupational health and safety lie there? Who's at risk? Yeah. And who's who's really needs to clean that up now? So because it's very different if you're paid to do a job and you do that, opposed to a homeowner doing it. Yeah. Um, and also where they can dispose of waste as well. Yeah. It's completely different. And with water too, it doesn't just travel across. It can travel <laughs> up walls too. So you don't know how far yeah. up the wall, even though the water maybe went 10 centimetres 10 centimeters into the building, it could be affecting 30, 40, 50 centimetres up the actual wall. And, and older buildings too, um, you've got to look at if you're going to be cutting into a wall where's the electricity mm. so is it like are you turning electricity off are you getting someone in to turn the electricity off um where's your safety around that as well so then if you take the wall out and you leave those exposed plugs um there's a risk with that as well so the whole heap of things uh, when it comes to that sort of thing 
you also have to look at um, habitable spaces opposed to inhabitable spaces as well. What's the difference between that? So if you're going into like a crawl space or roof or something like that, that's a non-habitable space. What's your WHS regulation around going into confined areas? If it's confined area, if it is a confined area, um, you know, there's limited airflow up there. So maybe there's asbestos that's been in up in the roof cavity. So there is a, a lot of things you have to consider. You also have to consider the airflow, humidity and the temperature of the materials that you're drawing. So what you're actually putting onto site. So the equipment you're putting onto site, uh, what time of year it is. Mm -hmm. um, are you going to enclose the building or not enclose the building? How you're setting up how the you're equipment up. so that who's going to be left in the property? Spreading. Yep. So yeah. if there's trip fall hazards, um, are you are you heating it up to forty degrees, but the people are staying in the house, and now it becomes a risk. Is there a risk of flooding again? Yeah. Especially but, if you've got equipment in there. Yep. Is it going to flood again? Because then you've got water and electricity mixing, and we all know that's not good. That's right. So, so yeah, you got to think of those things as well. Um, so when we look at all these sorts of things, there's a few regulation guidelines that we do go. So you've got the work, Safe Work Australia regulations. Um, you've got the Job Safety Analysis and Safe Work Method Statements. You've got the Manufacturer's Instructions and the um, Safety Data Sheets, or the SDS. Um, and you also got the Personal Protective Equipment, the PPE, um, which is getting the correct selection um, but also the care of that PPE as well. Is it disposable? Yeah. Is it reusable? Is it maintained? Yeah. Um, are the filters old? Are the filters new? Yeah. Do they need? So there's a lot of that, a lot of it that we're actually going to go through as well. So as I said, we've got the slips, trips, and falls and spills mm -hmm. uh, is another thing you got to look at. You've also got manual handling. Um, so the techniques of moving furniture, moving your mm -hmm. equipment. Um, you know, so getting your, if you use a portable machine, how do you get that portable machine um, out of your vehicle to get inside? And once you've got it inside, where the hoses are, it's going to cause a trip. downstairs. Absolutely. So a lot of things to consider there. Um, identifying um, safety practices. So again, it could be um, asbestos. asbestos, it could be uh, silica dust, uh, lead, lead paint. And is that something that your company can handle or do you need to find someone yeah, else absolutely. to go out and do it? Yeah. And and do you know what um, what asbestos is in? Yeah. You know, there's asbestos awareness courses that you can look at. Um, so that'll give you a good idea as well. So we might uh, link an asbestos awareness course. Uh, I think Cassie has one of those. No? Um, we'll find one anyway. So yeah. we might link one. <laughs> we'll, we'll find one anyway. Uh, and then the use of safe electrical equipment. So the equipment that you're putting in, is it safe? Has it been tested recently? Um, if it's going into a, uh, a home, a property, it's to be tested every 12 months. If it's going into a commercial property, sometimes you have to test them every time you go in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's every three months, sometimes it's every six months. Mm -hmm. So depending on that policy of that building um, and the occupants, you have to look at those things as well. So um i know if you're going to a council or uh, sorry a large builder so if you're going to like a hot shows or something like that builders uh everyone has to have the same colored tag on so they have colored tags for each um part of the year so um blue is for winter green is for spring red is for summer and yellow is for autumn so the good thing about that is if a safety inspector walks on site 
and it's all supposed to be green plugs and he sees a red red plug, well, then he can tell that to get off site straight away. So yeah. he's uh, visually safe rather yeah. than having to go up and check every individual tag. That's right. So be aware of that as well. Um, but also be make, make sure you do have somebody that is compliant to check. Um, and if, you, if you've got a decent enough size company, you have a lot of machinery, that cost does go up. So you can actually get somebody, uh, I think it's a two-day course, to go in and do the two-day course. And then you can test tag your own equipment. You just got to buy the machinery. Uh, and then you put your own license on that, which makes it a bit cheaper. Uh, but knowing that you can't, if you just got that license, you can't test tag any other anyone else's equipment. It's only your company's equipment. So we're going to look at uh, some of the cleaning principles as well. Um, and again, we're at, a, we're at this moment, it's uh, March uh, 2022. And we just had significant flooding down the east coast of Australia. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, posts on social media where uh, places have been inundated with water. Uh, there's visible mold growth and there's drying equipment being placed in there. Um, and look, some of the people that are doing this obviously think they're doing the right thing because they obviously, well, we hope that they're not intentionally going in there doing the wrong thing, but maybe they just don't know any better. So we've got to look at, um, you know, where we put the equipment in, what sort of clean down are we doing, what, what chemicals are we using? What steps do we need to follow what and what comes yeah. first? Because some people will just jump straight to removing the water and chucking dry, drying equipment in. But if they haven't gone over the microbial contaminations yeah. and that sort of stuff, that's not yeah, going to that necessarily hasn't. work. Yeah. And they're probably just going to spread it throughout the rest of the property. And I've had conversations with, quite a lot of people in my local area where it did get flooded quite badly and some of them are doing it themselves before the insurance company can get it and I've sort of said to a few of them you might want to just slow down a little bit maybe get the stuff that you can out of the house that you can save that might have got just a little bit wet or it's a hard surface so if it's more content items than anything and leave the building to someone that it's like actually mm. going to come in especially when you've got that insurance and you got to remember too that um there's contamination in that water. So the mud that's left behind is highly contaminated with bacteria, uh, with things that we don't even know about. So if you go into site and you've got a cut, an abrasion or anything like that, and you go into site and touch some of this stuff, you can be infected pretty quickly. I have a friend that after I said to him to just kind of leave it and not go knee deep into the water yeah. and everything, he actually ended up in hospital less than a week later because his legs had swollen up with a big infection. Yeah. And I said to him, there is a very good chance that that is from you trying to do all the work by yourself with not having the right stuff on or knowing what to do. Yep. And these, these are going to be going on for a long time as well. So, um, you know, we're looking at probably 18 months to two years before some of these claims are even finalised. So, you know, after the, um, uh, the earthquake in Auckland, uh, those places were left for two years, not even opened up. And there was people going in there finding microorganisms that they'd never seen before, you know. So they just don't know what's actually in all these, uh, all the bacteria that's in there. So uh, just be cautious going in there if you're doing that sort of work. Um, and as a professional, make sure that you clear the area that you're going to work in. Don't just go in there and start trotting over everything and thinking you'll be right. Um, start from one end of the house, the obviously the entry point, and start removing as you go. So clean down, remove, 
clean down, remove, clean down, remove as you go through, and then do your treatments. Um, and again, it's it's very important that you do have processes in place. So in one of the future uh, programs that are coming up very shortly, we're going to talk to some IEPs about um, what they're looking for, uh, what the insurance company is actually looking for, what, and then what the IP is going to be looking for as a um, PRE, so uh, uh, evaluation before what's going on, and then evaluation after the event as well. So after you've gone through and done the decon, what they're going to be looking at as well. So that'll be very helpful for those doing that sort of work. But if on this case, we've got a cat three water loss, You'll be looking for a coli will be the major thing that you'll be looking for. Again, there's going to be other bacteria in there, but we're looking at a coli. We're going to be looking at how to test that, uh, what do those results mean, and what is the clearance on that as well. Um, so that'll be coming up in some of the next episodes. And just on working from the front of the house to the back of the house, the other thing you want to do too is communicate that to the homeowner mm. because the last thing you want to do is have them go in while you're not there and potentially hurt themselves. So if you're saying to them, I've put signs of where is safe or this is the area that is safe and the rest of the areas areas try and avoid. Obviously, you can't control them, but you can warn them of what will happen if or what could happen if they go into those areas. So, so just on that point, is there an email or some sort of documentation that people should be um, giving the clients to actually explain to them? And then there's a backup. Is there something that uh, we had with that? You, you could, you could give them um, maybe like a terms of service or something like that, because technically they're not the ones that are actually bringing on your services, it's the insurance company. But as long as you're communicating with them, don't do this and why is the main thing. Because if you tell someone not to do it, they're going to do it. If you explain why not to do it, because they could get hurt or this could happen or, you know, and you won't be covered and we're not going to take the blame for it because we've got our signage, we've got our paperwork, we've handed you this document, there's evidence of that, they're less likely to do things like that. So that could be a welcome to using our services, yeah. even though they're not actually technically engaging you um, and just having a, so um, what do you need to do? What do we do and what to expect? So then you're setting those ex expectations clearly um, for them of what they can do, what they shouldn't do and what you're going to do. And for me personally, I would have that in writing. So yeah. if something was to come up later, uh, at least you could produce some sort of evidence. And you can set those sorts of things up as an automatic mm. email to be sent out too. So it's less admin work. And you might get find that you're getting less admin phone calls too from that because they're already told what to expect or what's going to happen or the steps that you're going to go through. Because people don't know about this industry a lot of the time until they need it. Yeah. So it's new to them and they're already probably a bit emotional, confused, stressed out about what's going on. They've got a lot of moving pieces kind of happening. So it can be a bit confusing. Alrighty. So we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty stuff now, Brooke. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to start with SOPs or standard operating procedures, the importance of them, how to implement them and where do you get them from? Mm -hmm. So, let's, so let's first thing is probably some people will refer to a standard operating procedure as a safe operating procedure. They're essentially the same thing because you're not putting a procedure in place, especially in writing, unless it's safe to do. That's the one thing. And if you do that, it's probably not the greatest of choices. So you should be making sure that your SOP has been developed based off of 
manufacturing instructions, SDSs, all that sort of stuff. The easiest way to use SOPs is to have an SOP for every piece of equipment that you've got and every chemical that you've got. And it can be time consuming to start off with, but then it will end up saving time later on down the track because you can, instead of saying these are the things, the steps that I've taken to um, control any risks, you've already got that SOP that details to your staff members. If you're using this chemical, this is the PPE or this is the control measures that you can use to protect yourself. And then that documentation, rather than them having to write it all out every time they go to a job, every time they use that chemical, they're just saying refer to and you might have numbers. So it might be SOP number, blah, blah, blah. Um, that then cuts down their time, even though it might take a little bit if you've got a lot of different chemicals, but it's going to work out in the long run because they're not having to assess all those risks every single time. Um, same with equipment you're probably using the same sort of equipment at most jobs. So again, you can do that as well. It's going to be the same electrical safety hazards, um, manual lifting. Um, what else is there? Having a mind blank now. What's that for? Um, for equipment, like the different hazards for equipment. Yeah, electrical. Electrical hazards. Yeah, that's and that's probably about it when it specifically comes yeah. to the equipment. Um, but if you've got those there, that's less for your technicians having to A, think about and B, have to write. So saving on that time out on site too. Um, Is it um, mandatory that people do SOPs? It's not mandatory, but you can use it as evidence to show that you're following WHS regulations and le legislation. So it's that's where the WHS regulations and legislation gets a bit gray is you don't actually have to legally have some of this documentation you may have that requirement from an insurance company that you're working with or a builder that you're working with or just a client that you have but when it comes to the legislation and regulations it might not necessarily be legal like legally required for the type of work that you're doing um, and I think a lot of people get confused over what's legally required and just what is going to protect you in the long run if something goes wrong. Um, but with SOPs too, they need to be broken down really, really simply and step by step, like to the point of getting the piece of equipment out of the van or getting the um, chemical out of the storage where it's being stored. So there's all those sorts of things that have to be considered and go straight back to step one and breaking down, diluting it, mixing it. What do you put it in? based on your company requirements too, because some places are going to be a little bit different. They might have funnels to, um, to mix it. It might already be pre-mixed for them. It's going to change from organisation to organisation, but they need to have their own sort of system in place of step one, this, step two, and following on from that. So interesting point you brought up there was it, it's not legislation to have. Mm -hmm. But best practice, so you should have. Yes. Um, and I think that's key to understand as well is that, again, with business, you're looking at how do I limit your risk? Mm -hmm. um, and if you've had these things in place and they're implemented properly, well, then you'd start to limit your risk as a business owner. Mm -hmm. um, but also now uh, with the way the legislation is, is that everybody is responsible from the lowest person on the totem pole to the highest person on the totem yeah. pole. So it's at everyone's best interest 
that um, you know your WHS is followed, mm-hmm. and if it says recommend, we recommend or yeah. should, yeah. Um, you know, you probably should look at having it. If not everything completed, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous, it takes a long time and costs a lot of money for that. But at least get the ball started. So, mm-hmm. how do people start with an SOP? What what's one of the first things they can do? Um, I guess the first thing. I guess personally that I would do would be going and having a look at your chemicals because they're probably going to be your biggest risk because you're going to have to have the right PPE for that. Whereas with your electrical side of things, it's the electrical safety and manual handling. So that's more about using your brain versus the chemical that you actually need to have that PPE on hand for your staff to then use. So I would go through your chemicals first and go one by one. You'd look at your safety data sheet um maybe have a look at the manufacturer's website and see if they've got any recommendations of how to use it in a certain way a lot of chemical uh, manufacturers will have maybe youtube channels with videos and stuff of how to mix or how to use or best ways best things to use with it whether it's bloggers misters sprayers the application measures all of those sorts of different things storage yep how to store it um when storing chemicals you've also got to look at is it a dangerous good and or a hazardous substance because they can either be both or one or the other um and how does that need to be stored too because you don't want to be and storing things Mm. yeah close to something it shouldn't be stored next to because then that could have a reaction if there's a spillage or anything like that yeah you have a car crash or something like that yeah and they were to break all of a sudden you've got chemicals mixing together and then even big explosives yeah so again it also um how much you can travel with some chemicals you can't travel with more than 500 mils okay so some you can't 20 liters um so yeah all those things the manufacturer should have but again it's good practice to actually know what that is how to find them as well um so if something does happen um you can gain access to it pretty quickly as well so um sop um documentation as far as layout um how to set it out um just so that that can vary depending on the business you could have it set up as a simple step one step two with you might want to go into more detail like step one then something and a part a part b um it could just be a step one step two simple format you might want to pretty it up a little bit it's up to people the organization as long as they have it in writing it's still going to protect them Okay. Okay. All good information. Seems very hard, but once you it, get going. It does. It yeah. seems really hard and it seems very overwhelming. But once you do one, you find it's actually not that hard and you're probably overthinking it quite mm. a lot because that's something that Phil and I did sit down and we did do one from very start to finish uh, for a job. And it was actually a lot easier. But then you also had to kind of think outside the box and put yourself at that job site to work out what is actually step one. Mm. Step one's driving to the place. Mm. So then that's step one, not arrive, take stuff out. And so we found to start off with, we're going, oh, wait, no, wait, we'd have to do this because we've got to get to site first. So it's those simple little things that you forget about. But once you get your mind in that kind of mindset, you should be fine after that. There's a lot of copy and paste as well. Yeah, there will be a lot of copy and paste for chemicals especially yeah. because a lot of chemicals are probably going to be used similar ways and they're probably going to have the same sort of PPE, same sort of mixing situations, all that sort of stuff. So 
you can go through that. You can do flow charts for it. Um, like if it's for certain jobs you might have, is it for this job? Yes, then, okay, this is the procedure that you follow. If it's not, you, there's another procedure that you follow. So yeah. it depends how complicated you want to make it. If you want to have two separate SOPs for that certain thing, you can do that or you can just keep it in the one and go go to step two if you don't want to do a flow chart. And, again, look, when you're putting these together, think about um, new stuff you're onboarding as well. So the, the best way to do this is actually think of the person that, that you're doing it for knows nothing um, and then it started from scratch. And the beauty about once you've done it, um, when you're onboarding the new staff members, part of the onboarding system can be them having a look through your SOP. So they then start to get a clear picture of, okay, that's the step, that's the step, that's the step. And the beauty about having steps is that the process in the end speeds up. So the, the ability to get somewhere quicker is always going to be quicker if you know how to get there, the processes on how to get there. So if I was driving from Brisbane to Melbourne, um, is driving the quickest way? Well, probably not. I would, you know, fly. Yeah. Okay, so flying might be the quickest way. <laughs> Um, if they invent time machine, maybe that's going to be the quickest way. So, again, think of someone who doesn't know anything at all. Um, if you just said, can you get to Melbourne, are they going to walk? Okay, so think of it like that. Um, and, and you've got to really – you can pull it back as basic as you want. Preferably, for me, I would like to do it as basic as possible because you can take little snippets out of those anyway. So when you're doing up your quotes or you're putting your paperwork together, you can – Simply put as much information in there as you want or as little as you want. So, but if you have the information there from, from start to finish, it's just cut and paste out of this one, cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste, yeah. and you start not to even think about it as Brooke was saying. So, and if you start doing your SOPs to, to make sure that you've kind of made it simply, you might even go get, if you've got an admin team that doesn't maybe go out to jobs, you could use them mm. to go, hey, read this. Does this make sense to you? Because they're not actually using the chemicals. They're answering the phone. Yeah. And whilst they know how the job kind of works, they're not actually doing it. So if they can make sense of it, you're probably on the right track. The other thing too with this is, is if it's been, there might be times where it might've been a while for a specific technician mm. um, since they've done a particular type of job and we all forget things when we're doing other things. So rather than them having to call the admin team or somebody else to work out how to do something, if you've got this in a central location or they've got printouts in their vans or something along those lines, they can just go back and refer to it and it's step-by-step step and they can go, oh, that's right, rejog their memory and then they're back to it. Absolutely. Say so playing phone tag or trying mm. to get someone on the phone to ask for help or find the right person. Yeah. You've it just speeds everything up later. Again, slow process at the start, but speeds as from there, it speeds mm -hmm. everything up and down. Okay. Now, regardless of the layout of the SOP, mm -hmm. what are the fundamental things that they should be mm -hmm. structuring that SOP around? Yeah. Um, so first one is the purpose. So that is just going through and identifying exactly what that SOP is going to be about because there's no point in writing step-by-step -step instructions if you're not saying what it actually is and what yeah, it will be goal. used for. Yeah. So, um, again, with your specific chemicals, you might have a chemical that's for water damage jobs. So you'd have this is for... specific for Cat 3 water exactly. damage Exactly. So you'd yeah. list that on the SOP at the very top. 
so that that they know that that's exactly what that yeah. is for. So if they grab that chemical, this is what it's for. This yeah. is how to apply it. And this doesn't direction. replace the SDS no. either. They still have to look at the SDS because they have to know what's in the SDS. And a lot of people don't do that. Um, that's one thing we've had a couple of times where we've had training days and I've asked the question, how many people have actually read the SDS for their chemicals? Nine times out of 10, maybe one or two people have put their hand up and they can't actually tell you what's in the SDS. They just say, oh, I kind of just had a quick look at it and oh, I don't really know what's on it and I don't really understand it. So it's really important to um, have a look at that. We do have a course on the CASI website that is free that goes through what bits of an SES are important and what things you should know, what each section kind of means. Um, so that kind of explains that a bit better because um, it does go on for a little bit. There is a lot of information on an SES. It can tell you uh, that course also says how to find an SES. Mm. You should get one from um, whoever your supplier is, but for whatever reason, you might have lost it, misplaced it, need an up-to-date version of it, whatever it is. Um, so that shows, uh, explains to you there's a few different ways of finding it. Um, so that can come in handy too. Yeah, and also the boys on site or ladies, whoever it is on site, um, it shows them how they can find it if they're in that position where they have to find it straight yeah, away. because that, yeah. is, that is actually a legal requirement, requirement yeah. that if someone asks to see your SDS for the chemicals that you have, not even just the ones that you're using, Whatever's in your van, you need to have access to an SDS for it. So if you don't have an SDS or you can't find it, you've usually got a phone or a tablet or an iPad or something with access to the internet, you should be able to find it fairly quickly and then you can produce that and go, there it is. Okay. Um, so the next thing is obviously the scope. Yeah. Who's going to be using it? Uh, yeah, so that just goes through it? the specific yeah. tasks as well. So... Um, yeah, as you said, who should follow it, yeah, roles and responsibilities. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you'll also find that SOPs will refer to another SOP because sometimes they're going to be connected. Like if you're using a chemical SOP and it says to use a fogger, then you're going to have an SOP for a fogger that connects to that to go, so this is how we now use a fogger as well. Mm -hmm. So it's going to kind of rely on each other, which is where having that a time where you do produce all your SOPs for your chemicals and your equipment do come in handy because you can go, this one goes with this one and that's done. Yeah. And it's, as I said, it's training on site as well. So, yeah. And then it's obviously the procedure as well. Yeah. So the details of the scope or the step that you're actually going to do yeah. um, to be effective in that task. Yeah. So, and it needs to be very clearly written. Yeah. There needs to be no room to sort of move, no room to... Um, take it one way or the other. It needs to be very clear cut and the right amount of information. And just heads up on that one, in the standards, that's a shell. So anybody who knows anything about the standards, if it says shell, you must do it. Yeah. So it is, it's an actual compliance uh, procedure. So there's no point doing it in the end anyway, unless it's clear and yeah. people can understand it. That you're wasting your time if you're not doing it in a way that can be understood Clearly. easily. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, guess what? We're at the end of uh, session one, and we haven't got into half of it yet. No. So, <laughs> it's fun. So, look, guys, there is a lot involved with this. Um, we are putting into two sessions for that reason. We don't want to overload you. There is a lot of information that has been brought up. 
but there's also going to be a lot more information and valuable information that you're going to hear in the next episode as well. So, but if you do one thing in the next two weeks, try and start an SOP. Absolutely, yeah. Give it a yeah. crack. Yeah, SOP. Feel free to send it through to us as well on our Facebook page or yep. Yep. whatever. Share it with people. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, you can do this with someone another company as well because SOPs don't normally change if you're using the same chemical, same PPE, same equipment. They're virtually the same anyway. So you could team up with a few friends. Or it might get... just be locations that have changed. Yeah. Like it's stored in a different place. They're simple things to change. Yeah. So again, bring your close allies into this. Uh, make sure they listen to it first so they have an understanding of what they're actually doing uh, and doing it correctly. And, um, and again, thank you very much, Brooke, and we'll see you on the next one. By assessing this podcast, I acknowledge that the Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Unless specifically stated otherwise, the Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, or surface, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. The third-party materials or content of any third-party site referenced in these podcasts do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of the Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast. The Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or on third-party sites referenced in this podcast, or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and all links referenced herein. Moreover, the Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elemental codes that manifest contaminating or destructing uh, properties. The Professional Carpet Cleaners and Restorers podcast expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.